0: About a first move and here in the United States, a brand new CNN poll finds that President Biden's approval rating has dropped to 39% from 41% in July. Now, as far as the economy is concerned, nearly 60% of people who responded think the president's actions are making things worse. And the gap between President Biden and potential Republican candidates is very narrow. If it came to a race between Biden and former Vice President Mike Pence, the poll says Pence leads 46 to 44 percent, though that's within the margin of error, of course. Here's what Pence had to say about the poll just moments ago on CNN.
1: Joe Biden has weakened this country at home and abroad. The American people are done uh, with the failed policies of President Joe Biden uh, and now I think Republican primary voters and frankly, you know, many independents and many Democrats around the country are looking for that leader and looking for that agenda that will really restore our economy and, uh, and ensure our national security in generations to come.
0: Now, climate change not featuring in that poll is a key issue, but it remains a vital part of the concerns of the Biden administration. Special Envoy John Kerry just attended the first Africa Climate Summit, where leaders in the continent spoke with one voice. For the most part, their demands include a global carbon tax and financial reforms ahead of the next UN climate conference in Dubai, COP28. And I'm pleased to say joining us now is Special Envoy John Kerry. Secretary Kerry, always fantastic, sir, to have you on the show. Um, Some of those issues, pretty thorny. What concrete can be achieved? And where does this lead as now heading to COP28?
1: Well, I'm very excited about what's happening economically, globally with respect to the climate crisis right now. We just had a major meeting in Africa. Uh, President uh, Ruto of Kenya uh, convened nations from all over Africa and elsewhere. Uh, And there was a unanimity about the urgency of responding to the climate crisis, but also there was unanimity about the positive aspects of that for our economies. There are just unbelievable number of jobs in the new technologies that are gonna help us have a clean economy a clean, well, uh, clean world, in effect, by using renewable, alternative, clean energy. And that includes nuclear energy, which I've just been working on here in Romania, where President Johannes of, uh, of uh, Romania has gathered 15 nations of Eastern Europe and Central Europe, all of whom are focused on economic development, on the future of responding to the crisis by growing jobs, in new technologies that will be clean and not add to the problem.
0: Yeah, it's a global story and uh, it's tough to keep up with you, sir. I know you're traveling around the world um, constantly. Just to take it back to um, the point, though, that you were making about Africa, and I think it's vitally important because they contribute so little in terms of emissions and the carbon footprint versus suffering a great deal of the damage that we're clearly already seeing in the world. They're 3% currently of, of global renewable investment. Where do you see that percentage rising to, let's say over even just the next five to 10 years? Because there is opportunity here to your point. The question is, how do we harness it?
1: Well, we are harnessing it. That's precisely what President Biden has set out to do and is doing in the Inflation Reduction Act, which has kicked our economy in much higher gear, created a whole number of jobs in various sectors in the United States, the United States is leading with respect to the new technologies here in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, country after country is begging to work, not begging, it's the wrong word, but asking and looking forward to working with us in order to be able to develop their economy. So right here, yesterday, I visited the university here in Bucharest. That university has a uh, a system set up, computer system that is actually modeling Uh, what they can do with respect to the new energy in small modular nuclear reactors. Uh, They're going to become a hub or a center, if if you will, of economic activity for the development of these uh, small modular reactors for other countries. Poland was here. Poland is uh, uh, turning to Westinghouse uh, and looking for a larger nuclear reactor capacity which we are looking forward to working with them on in order to be able to transition off of coal. So there's a, there's just an enormous amount happening. I must say that I have been uh, more uh, impressed by the, the possibilities for meeting this transition by virtue of what I have seen so many nations embracing at this point in time. And the United States should be very proud that we are leading in this endeavor in technologies as well as in helping other countries to be able to access those technologies. So uh, the central part of Europe is the fastest central part and, and the uh, Baltic states, as well as Greece uh, and uh, the uh, Slovenia, Slovakia, et cetera. Those are the fastest growing uh, countries in Europe today. They're leading growth in Europe and they're leading it because they're moving into the new technologies of responding to the climate crisis. So I think we're seeing a new economy develop on a global basis, some places faster than others, some places more effective than others. But this transition is underway, and there are enormous numbers of new jobs in, in uh, solar or wind or batteries or electric vehicles, direct carbon capture, hydrogen. There's just a huge amount happening that should excite the world.
0: And it's, it's brilliant to hear, actually, that, that things are moving so fast as much as we know we need them to move quicker, too. But even in this transition period, there's there's winners and losers. And, and to your point, America is going gangbusters with promoting investment. And it is causing a, a sort of ripple effect, I think, around the world. I don't think begging was actually the wrong word to use in the, in the context <laughs> that you did. Um, but the, some of the losers are pushing back. And I think we see that here in America in the recent um, auto worker union negotiations, where they're saying, look, um, you know, you're know, you pushing money and incentives towards things like electric vehicles. What about legacy businesses? How do you find the balance? And what's the message to those in the fossil fuel industry and those that are in sort of legacy auto businesses and saying, look, we're, we're sort of pushing money away from you or interest away from you and, and pushing other things? It is a tough sell, particularly heading into a, into an election year.
1: I think what we're seeing, actually, uh, Joye, is a transition that is very thoughtful about people. And President Biden has made it clear that he he's trying to implement policies that don't leave anybody behind. Mm. Transitional efforts for training, uh, entry into new jobs. Uh, the United States of America right now has one of the lowest unemployment rates in the world. And part of our, our biggest problem is we need more people to be doing jobs, and which will help, frankly, expand uh, to a larger degree. But we're seeing an enormous amount of, uh, of a new opportunity for workers around the United States. The, the third fastest growing job of a few years ago was a solar panel installer. The first, uh, the, the, the number one fastest growing job in the United States was wind turbine technician. And, and I think we will see wages that are competitive. Actually, I th- I think I saw it on some of the economic reports that net wages were going up now and above inflation rate. So I think there are things happening that are very beneficial. But the important thing is, if you don't do this, Julia, yeah. if you decide to slow it down or don't pay attention to it, we will be paying far more money just to clean up the damages and to respond to Uh, the problems that come with the climate crisis. And that's been true. You can see that in what has happened in the United States. We've had almost every 18 days, at least one $1 billion climate event. And, and, And we're seeing, just saw on television this morning, this has been the hottest year ever recorded. And last year was the hottest year before this one. Next year will be hotter still. So we have to make fundamental choices about protecting life on the planet and about providing new economic opportunities so people can do well. Life with this transition will be cleaner, healthier, it'll be safer, and we will be more prosperous in the doing of this economic transition that we're in.
0: Yeah. And I like your point about not leaving anybody behind. Um, it sort of circles me back to the discussions again from COP27, but also, I think, in Nairobi. And that was the the loss and damage fund that was agreed back then. Um, Secretary Kerry, I know it's a challenge. It's a challenge of, of providing money to a fund, but without taking on endless future uh, civil legal liabilities, if not more, are we managing to negotiate something that can allow for the cash to be provided without the legal liability? And, and when will the money start coming? How long is it going to
1: take? Well, in the next three months, we will continue the negotiations that have been taking place uh, in order to arrive at a consensus about how this can be done. Uh, the The nations that are lucky enough to have strong economies around the world have been trying to help other nations. The United States is, uh, I'm proud to say, the largest humanitarian donor in the world. Uh, and we are trying to work a way to make this transition as fair as possible to everybody. But but in the terms of the losses and damages in the fund that was agreed upon by everybody, we have to make certain that that is uh, getting input from everyone, that it is not unfair in itself. Uh, We've made it very clear that we're not opening up some channel of liability and compensation, but we are trying to provide help to people who need that help for reasons that are no cause of their own. Of the the 20 uh, most threatened nations in the world due to the climate crisis, 17 of them are in Africa. And as you said earlier, Africa Africa is only 3% of all the emissions of the world. There are 20 countries, us among them in the United States, uh, Europe as an entity, China, Russia, India, others, who represent 80%, nearly 80%, just shy of 80% of all the emissions of the planet. And so we need to bring all those countries to the table. And there are high expectations that for Dubai, uh, we're going to see broader participation in trying to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem we we certainly hope that the uh fossil fuel industry itself will step up they've got to be part of this solution also
0: can i ask about china you sort of <laughs> led you led me in that direction sorry sir do you want some uh, some
1: water or are you good yeah we have moment we're not live so i can grab a little water yeah
0: We actually are live, sir, but I I also don't want you to cough. So um, (laughs) we get you some water. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to live TV. These things happen. Um, There we go. Cheers. Um, (laughs) While while you're drinking, um, China. Is China on board? Uh,
1: At this point, no. And... um, We're hopeful that uh, over the course of the next uh, few months that uh, China will come to the table and and uh, certainly be helpful in finding the solution here. China is about 30 percent of all the emissions of the world. It's the largest single emitter. It's the second largest economy in the world. And we really do need China to uh, help in this endeavor. And hopefully uh, something uh, can be uh, arranged. But as of this moment, there is no agreement about how that's gonna happen.
0: Yeah, it's a tough one, I know. Um, Final question, and then I promise to let you go. Um, Can I ask your views on um, direct action? Uh, Just stop oil comes to mind. Um, These were the guys that at the National Gallery in the UK, they threw soup on Van Gogh's sunflowers. Um, they clearly are passionate. They're traffic stopping around the world. They're in many ways fighting the cause you are to protect the planet. They're just going about it in a, in a, in a sort of disruptive way. Advice for them, thoughts on them?
1: Well, my, my, uh, I, I understand people who feel very, very deeply that they need to demonstrate or that they're fed up with promises that aren't fulfilled. And there's certainly a growing militancy <clears throat> in the world. And, and that militancy will grow if people in positions of responsibility do not take action. But I would also say that you're not going to help uh, win any converts by destroying a great work of art or making it very difficult for people to get to work and so forth. I think how you select what you do and what you do is always quite critical. And I say that as somebody who, demonstrated, who was involved in protest. I respect that right. I admire people who are willing to put themselves on the line, even in civil dis- dis- disobedience. But you understand that when you are civilly disobedient, there are consequences. And that's part of making the point you want to make. I, I think right now we need people to be moving the political process as constructively as possible. And what we need are uh, sort of massive pushback against nonsense uh, and, and, you know, for instance, subsidizing uh, uh, the problem by making sure by, where, where we subsidize uh, some of the industries that are creating the problem in the first place. We should not now be approving or financing any new unabated coal fired power plant, for instance. Mm. And I think it's critical for us to be making <clears throat> the really hard choices and the critical choices that will define the future. Clearly, you can't stop overnight. You can't just shut down all the economies of the world. Uh, Nobody, I mean, that just doesn't make sense. But what you do need is to get everybody at the table and come to agreement as to what the levels of responsibility are for the various uh, sectors of our economy, work constructively together as we are trying to do in order to provide new solutions to these problems, and we're seeing that happen. New technologies coming online. People are pushing and accelerating the effort to deliver green hydrogen or deliver uh, some way of capturing all the emissions and, 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 and uh, doing something useful with them or stopping them in the first place. We see uh, a huge growth in electric vehicles and also in uh, uh, the provision of power from mm. renewable sources or clean energy sources that's having a profound impact on the demand for fossil fuel. And that demand at some point is going to go down. And and that's the beginning of sort of the real signal of an orderly, sensible uh, transformation that is taking place because the economy itself and the leaders of that economy and the consumers of that economy in that economy are making choices that Make it clear to manufacturers and producers that new products are, are, are needed, that they're ready to buy the things that make sense to have a clean economy, healthier economy, safer economy, more prosperous economy. And that's what we will have if we continue down the road that President Biden has us on right now for this transition.
0: Yeah, we just need other countries around the world uh, that we've already mentioned to be on board. Um, Secretary Kerry, I'm always enthused when I speak to you because you are at the beating pulse of all the positive work towards protecting our planet. Um, you're the man in the know. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much. The U.S. Special thank Presidential you. Envoy for Climate. Great to chat thank to you, sir. Thank, thank you. Thank you for my
1: live drink of water.
0: I know. Fantastic. <laughs> we'll speak again soon. All right, let's move on. A new biography about billionaire Elon Musk reveals fresh details about his connection to Russia's war in Ukraine. In an excerpt, the book's author, Walter Isaacson, details how Musk secretly ordered his engineers to turn off his company's Starlink satellite communications network near the Crimean coast last year to disrupt a Ukrainian sneak attack on the Russian naval fleet. Natasha Bertrand is in Washington for us. Natasha, there have been reports on this, and it's a little bit more complicated, which we can, we can get into, but just give us more details on, on what happened here and the reasoning behind it.
2: Yeah, Julia, so this is an excerpt of a biography written by Walter Isaacson about Elon Musk's life that was obtained by my colleague, Sean Lingus. And in it, it really goes into new detail about just how far Elon Musk went to try to prevent the Ukrainians from staging some kind of attack on Russian naval forces, Russian naval forces off the coast of Crimea. According to this excerpt, Elon Musk actually ordered his engineers to turn off the Starlink satellite communication system for the Ukrainians as they approach the Russian naval fleet uh, using drones. Now, there are also new details in this about just why Elon Musk felt the need to do that. Namely, he believed that if the Ukrainians moved forward with this attack on Russia's naval fleet uh, off the coast of Crimea, then Russia might actually respond by using nuclear weapons. And he said that he feared, quote, a mini Pearl Harbor. Now, it is unclear why he believed that, but the excerpt says that he did speak to Russian officials. So perhaps that drove his fear that they would respond with some kind of major escalation. But the biography also, according to this excerpt, really underscores Musk's ambivalence about more broadly using Starlink in a war setting. He says, quote, How am I in this war? Starlink was not meant to be involved in wars. It was so people can watch Netflix and chill and get online for school and do good, peaceful things, not drone strikes. So again, kind of Underscoring how Musk apparently never intended uh, for Starlink to be used for this purpose. But we should really uh, um, emphasize here that the Ukrainians need Starlink on the battlefield in order to maintain their battlefield communications. It is invaluable for them to be able to communicate and make sure that units on the battlefield are not isolated and can actually carry out operations. This book, however, says that Elon Musk uh, really did not want it to serve that purpose. And of course, we reported last year that he threatened to the Pentagon to actually stop funding additional Starlink services to Ukraine. The Pentagon now, uh, according to a spokesperson there, has picked up the bill, Julia.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a, I think there was an estimated cost of $400 million over 12 months. And we've had this conversation with other tech companies like Microsoft, who pays in this situation when you, when you step in to help. Um, not easy, because you are forced to take sides, but um, that's the way of the world. Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much for that report.
3: There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to First Move, U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday and it is a softer open with the S&P on track for a third straight day of losses. Though it's a mixed picture, tech, as you can see, seeing the most weakness down around 1.5% overall. Apple, in fact, a big session loser, down some 4%. Apple losing 3.5% Wednesday as well amid reports that the Chinese government will ban the use of iPhone for government officials. Apple stock tends to do well before new product launches. But perhaps not this year. The company is set to announce its newly updated iPhone 15 next Tuesday. Context also key. Apple shares still up some 40 percent year to date. But as we said yesterday, around a fifth of revenues come from China. So it's a very important region for Apple. Now, representatives from many of the world's largest oil consumers as well as the globe's largest oil producers will be attending the G20 summit in New Delhi, India this weekend. G20 members Saudi Arabia and Russia this week announcing they will keep voluntary production cuts in place through the end of the year. That news helping push oil prices substantially higher with Brent crude rising for a seventh straight session on Wednesday. Look at that rise, though, since June. Both Brent and U.S. crude softer today, but still trading in a nine-month highs. Tighter supplies and continued strong demand could keep gas prices elevated this fall, too. A key political concern for President Biden as the 2024 vote nears. And Goldman Sachs predicting oil prices could soon hit $107 a barrel. Meanwhile, India's oil officials are saying their country's imports of discounted Russian crude are a, quote, win-win for the world's economy. Freeing up supplies for the rest of the world, despite the moral implications of helping Russia fund its Ukraine war. Russia remains China's top crude supplier, too, but a slowing Chinese economy continues to pressure demand, at least to some degree there. And it depends on the product you're talking about. Amrita Sen joins us now from Singapore. She's the co founder and director of research at Energy Aspects. And she's just returned from a trip to China, where she got a first hand look at the energy demand situation in that country. Amrita, great to have you. So you're going to shed some light. Two things going on. I think on a very basic level, demand is greater than we expected. The U.S., Europe, for the most part, avoided recession, and then you've got restricted supply from the OPEC members, Saudi and um, and Russia too, and that's the dominating force. Yeah, I think you've summarised it exactly right. Uh,
4: demand has surprised to the upside. I'd actually even say uh, China, regardless of the macro fears, oil demand growth has been extremely strong, about one point eight million barrels per day year on year and crude imports are coming coming in at record highs. August numbers out today, 12.7 million barrels per day. So uh, there is no sign of a slowing quote unquote Chinese economy on oil demand. And I think it's a very um, Western idea that Chinese oil demand has been weak. If anything, it's really uh, roaring ahead.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me about what's going on in China, because I was looking at some of the data and for all those concerns about economic slowdown, um, the data from the last month we have in July is a five month high in terms of demand.
4: Yeah, and you know we've heard from uh, oil or refiners over there, the state oil companies, that July was a record high for their sales. I think the biggest change, in some ways, is the economy is becoming more consumer driven. Uh, that's what the government's been trying to uh, aim for, anyways. Uh, we've seen diesel, which was far more uh, linked to manufacturing, uh, in the past. Forty percent of diesel demand used to be transportation trucking essentially now it's 70 percent because of e-commerce and you know, just like us in the west kind of ordering more stuff on amazon the same thing is going on in china so the the structure of the economy is changing and i think you know there's a lot of or there used to be at least a lot of bearishness particularly analysts from u.s banks putting out notes around how weak china has been when you mm. go there you realize that's absolutely not the
0: case yeah it's fascinating isn't it is that sustainable then? Because this is a crucial part of when we're looking at where oil prices go or at least demand goes in the future. They are a fundamental part of that. So what you're saying is based at least for now on what you're seeing, uh, it is sustainable. I mean, look, uh, do
4: I expect Chinese oil demand to grow again by close to 2 million barrels per day next year? No, because this was a post-COVID recovery. Globally, we think oil demand growth will be more like one2 million barrels per day year on year versus two million barrels per day this year, there will be a slowdown. Even US economy probably going into a mild recession. Uh, Europe already is in a mild recession. But that's still growth, right? It's not that we're slowing down or not definitely not declining. And supplies, OPEC plus are very, very keen to make sure inventories don't build, particularly Saudi Arabia. So we do have very clear mandate from them in making sure that the market is going to remain balanced. And so if demand surprises to the upside, we will continue to see oil prices go
0: you, to your credit, have been saying we could see oil at $100 a barrel for what the best part of the um, the last six months, I think, if not more. Yes. What do you expect for the back end of this year and beyond, particularly if we do see an ongoing extension of those supply restrictions from, from the Saudis and Russia? Because that's sort of a double-edged sword at some point too when they start to encourage other suppliers like the shale guys in the United States to um, ramp up production too. I mean, look. I, I think one of the
4: reasons they feel more confident about extending cuts—not just like the latest one, but in general—is the shale industry has changed. It just mm-hmm. doesn't react in the same way. There's a lot more capital discipline, but also we're running off of tier one acreage outside of the Permian. So I think that's that's this fundamental change for OPEC. Plus, remember the days when Saudi and Russia used to disagree. It used to be about shale and its response. Now that's gone. So that gives them a lot more confidence. Ultimately for Saudi Arabia, the revenue maximizes, right? What you can see now, the price has gone up a lot more. Yes, they're curtailing exports, but net-net, they're still earning, we calculated, 30 to $40 million per day more than H1 of this year, right, because prices have gone up so much. So that's what they're trying to achieve, a revenue maximization. Uh, and I wouldn't rule it out if they extend a little bit further into next year, simply because you know, usual refinery maintenance softer patch for oil demand. They just want to ensure that inventories don't build given the macro uncertainties.
0: Yeah. So get used to the prices we've got right now. If not potentially higher, is the message. (laughs) I'm Rita Sank. Great to chat to you, Director of Research at Energy Aspects. Thank you. Still to come on First Move, left behind in the middle of war. We'll visit the shelter taking care of hundreds of abandoned animals in Ukraine. Welcome back to First Move. The war in Ukraine has shattered cities, separated families and destroyed lives. Well, it's also turned many of man's best friends into orphans. Hundreds of dogs and cats have been left behind by owners who've been forced out of their homes. And that's where my next guest steps in. Shelter Friend is an animal rescue and rehab center that looks after homeless animals, including disabled dogs and cats. Staff there say since the war began, they've literally been overwhelmed with animals in need of a safe home. And joining us now is Marina Bolikovic, who runs the Shelter Friend in Dnipro, Ukraine. Marina, thank you so much for joining us. I think um, dog and cat lovers all over the world that are watching this, their hearts are with you at this moment. Just talk to me about the work that you and the team are doing. How many animals do you have
5: Hi studio, hi US, hi world, thank (laughs) you very much for inviting me Uh, and first of all I want to say thank you to all the people who is supporting Ukraine in our difficult times. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, from all the volunteers, from all the dogs and cats and from all the Ukrainian people about um, animals. Well, currently, I have more than 700 dogs and 250 cats and donkeys and goats. Uh, situation is hard, really hard, but we live on a different scale now. And with every sunrise, when we are alive, it's already a blessing. So we keep working, we keep saving. It is hard, it is very hard, but, um, but we try to manage.
0: Yeah. Where is the support coming from, Marina? If people are watching this, how, how can they provide support? Because I think what our viewers need to understand is you also have children. Your children have gone to safety in Poland, but you chose to remain and, and take care of, of these animals and, and continue your work here. Just, just describe what that's like and again, how people
5: can help. Well, um, it's only social networks. It's only Facebook and Instagram, frankly speaking. All the help is coming from from Facebook and Instagram, really. I mean, it's sad to say, but uh, animal welfare in Ukraine was a disaster before war. Mm. Now, of course, it's much worse. But, um, I mean, mentally, we were prepared for these wars when war started. And we did manage before war. We try to manage now, but really help. Help, It's everything is coming from Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, that's where we um, saw
0: you too, shelter friend on Facebook and Instagram, just in case people want to help. What proportion of these animals are being adopted? I know you have options to get the dogs to people if they want to adopt in in Poland, in in Germany, potentially too. I know Czech Republic's a little bit more difficult um, at the moment, given some of the restrictions on potential rabies concerns. But Marina, if there are people out there that would like to adopt, how do they, how do they go about that?
5: Well, the procedure is uh, long, but possible. Uh, USA is not, uh, allow, doesn't allow Ukrainian animals. I mean, mm-hmm. even it was not allowed even before war. But some European countries they do allow. It's quite complicated, but it's possible. The waiting time is almost five months. But whoever wants to, to help to save, people are waiting, yes. Uh, even even with Czech Republic, so it just has to be complete procedure with the papers. Uh, just the first year of war when laboratories been closed, it was very complicated. But now, I mean labs in Kyiv is laboratory in Kyiv is working for this rabies test, you know. So yeah. if somebody really want to adopt, uh, we, we do paper. just waiting time is all, almost five months to, to adopt.
0: Yeah, you know, I have a dog and he's so human to me. Sometimes the way he looks at me, um, I, I cannot even imagine the concept of having to leave him behind. Um, do these cats and dogs get hugged? every day how do you manage to just provide them with the love that they had within their families now that you have so many to deal with
5: well i don't i don't i mean dogs and cats they are not getting of course everything what they want mm-hmm. i mean for me uh, always was uh, quality more important than quantity even so As I said already, animal welfare was a disaster even before war. Sadly, but now it's more about the quantity Because everyday soldiers bring animals, refugees Mm. bring animals. We we were really lucky to be in a central location with a front all over around us. East front, north, south, it's just all around us. Like 70 kilometers from us, it's... um, Like war zone line, but but we were lucky because we are getting attacked here only from air, which is a matter of luck. But uh, we don't um, have ground fights here. So whoever is trying to rescue animals from fighting lands, everything is coming to us, to Dnepro or via Dnipro. Mm. So sadly now it's more about the quantity but of course, I mean we try to do our best, really. We try to do our best about the food, about the love, but um, it's not as good as I would like to to have, of course. But 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 right oh, yeah. now we are we are really saving lives, you know. So and Yeah. Um, yeah. And I hope well, Marina, I was just gonna say to
0: you're giving them far more than they would have had, and you are a total dog and cat hero in our book and You're incredibly brave, too. As you said, you're so close to the front lines and you're still doing your work. Um, We salute you. Big hug to you and to all the animals that you're taking care of. And we'll check in again with you soon. you. You take care. Thank you. I'm
6: Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them on Be My Guest, the podcast new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Back to first move. Rescue operations are underway to save an American who fell ill in one of the deepest caves in Turkey. 150 rescuers are involved in what's described as a complex operation. To say the least, Mark Dickey suffered gastrointestinal bleeding more than a kilometre below ground. The Turkish Caving Federation says getting him to the surface could take days. Jamal Akarache has the latest.
6: We don't really know the full details of what really happened, but what we do know from the Turkish Caving Federation is that American caver Mark Dickey, who was part of a local and international research team, fell ill last weekend or early this week, uh, more than 3,000 feet or 1,000 meters from the entrance of Turkey's third deepest cave. The Hungarian cave rescue service that is involved in his rescue uh, operation right now say he's lost a lot of blood as a result of gastrointestinal bleeding. He got six units of blood and was stabilized according to the Turkish Federation. They say his condition is continuing to improve. The bleeding has stopped. He's stable. He's able uh, to walk on his own and he is right now at base camp and that is still uh, more than 3,000 feet from the surface and It's a real logistical challenge to get him out of there. There are uh, more than 150 rescuers and personnel from Turkey, from its Emergency and Disaster Management Agency, AFAD, and rescuers from countries uh, including the U.S., Bulgaria, Hungary, Italy, Poland, Croatia, and many others that are involved in this uh, complex rescue effort. Uh, Mark Dickey, according to his own bio, is a very experienced caver. He's been caving in 20 U.S. states and 10 countries since the 90s. He's a rescuer himself and a rescue uh, instructor and the chief of the New Jersey initial response team focusing on cave, cliff and abandoned mine uh, rescue. The Turkish Caving Federation says it takes 15 hours for an experienced caver to reach the surface in ideal conditions. And this cave uh, has really narrow and winding passages, making it hard for them to get him out on a stretcher. And they're consulting with doctors on uh, moving him out. They expect that this effort could take days. Jumana Karachi, CNN, London.
0: Fingers crossed for him and all the team. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my X and Instagram pages. You can search for at Jay Chatterley CNN. Connect the world is up next.
3: Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.